Hello, hello. Welcome to Made to Think with your host, Ninjam. I have a new special guest on my show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have my old friend, Damien Kilroy. How are you, my friend? Not too bad, mate. How are you? I'm very good. Now, before we start, can you please introduce yourself? What's it all about? Um, so I'm Damien. I founded Loud Minority about uh, 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago now, um, which is putting on uh, mostly live music shows in, in Vietnam or in Saigon in particular. Excellent. How did we first meet? Can you remember? Chicago, I think, wasn't it? Were you dancing on a stage? <laughs> Sounds about right. Do you remember which gig was that? It was Cargo. I think it's when Cargo just opened because I, I met Rod and Craig. I was looking for a venue to do some live shows and I, I knew Rod did Bob Dylan. So I, I met with Rod and Craig and then they said, ah, it just so happens we're opening a new venue like the, the next month or something. And then so I went down to the opening of that thing. So... Okay, we're talking about a guy called Rod Quinton here. Uh, big shout yeah. out to Roddy. Big shout out to Craig Derbyshire. Um, I've been here 14 years, and those two people were the first that I met that were in the music game. I was looking to do some kind of boat party down the river, and I was told to speak to Rod. Um, Rod at the time owned, owned the boathouse, which is eventually I became the general manager of that, and Craig became my manager. So... Um, they opened a giant big event space. I didn't know that you was already looking for that kind of thing before you met them. I thought that all came together once you'd met. So how did you become this guy that wanted to put a lot of risk into making events? Because that's what it is, a risky business, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I was in Croatia for a couple of years doing the same thing. And then um, when, when I came to Vietnam, I was still getting emails from agents about you know, bands wanting to come and play in Croatia or come through. So, and then it, it was, I kind of was a bit frustrated that there was not, nothing like that going on in Saigon. There were kind of like, there were there were loads of parties and, got, and stuff going on, mostly like DJs or international DJs that lived here, <laughs> you know. Um, and it, But nothing in this sort of live music realm. So that's when I was kind of looking at a place, is it is it viable to, if we can get three or 400 cap space to bring a band here when they come through like Hong Kong or Singapore instead. Um, so I'd, I'd looked at Hard Rock and I'd looked at some like event centers that were kind of like wedding venues and stuff that weren't really quite the thing we were looking for. And then when I, when I met Rod, he was all excited about this new warehouse space, which, you know, just by the sound of it was like, yeah, this sounds more like what we, what we need. It was mega. I remember going into that spot with Rod because I'd, I'd already made a good relationship with him and I'd, I'd DJed at the boathouse like 13, 14 years ago for its birthday party. So they mentioned this idea of a warehouse and obviously we're from Manchester and we've been growing up in warehouse raves. And, you know, the scene in, in Vietnam, it's either too cheesy, too poppy or the sound's so bad you don't want to go in there. And then this this here we've got these guys that had already done Bob Dylan. This is the big claim to fame with Rod. He brought Bob Dylan over it, a huge risk, and it wasn't a profitable experience, but he did it, and he keeps doing it. And um, and then we did the Sound Festival together, which was a massive, big event. Were you there for that? I was, I was, was I in Vungtown there? I'm not sure. I was, I, no, I was, I was here then, because that was, yeah, yeah, I think I met, did I meet Rod around that time? 
That must have been around 2012, was it? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. So that was that was Vietnam's biggest music festival sponsored by Coca-Cola. And they brought over Big Bang from Korea, which was funny. I was DJing the whole day and I had no idea who the Big Bang was. But um, it was it was a massive success in the eyes of the public. But in the background, there was a lot of big things that went wrong. So we were all on a roll after that. We thought, here we go. We've got we've got all this like uh, all the eyes are on us now. We've got the ability to put these music shows on, and now we've got an event space. Um, so here we, you've come from Croatia, and is this where Loud Minority was born, or was it under another another name then? No, I, I had another partner in Croatia, and we had another. Uh, company Red Shack, so Loud Minority didn't exist in its in that name. Uh, so where, where did the idea of that name come from? Where's the birth of that? <laughs> well, it's weird that there's um there was like a jazz uh, like trio in the uh, the early nineties called United Future Organization. Right, it's like um, a couple of I think a couple of Japanese guys and a French guy. And they had this song called Loud Minority, which sampled a, a Frank Foster jazz track. And the, with the spoken word element that said, we're a part of the loud minority and we are nice. a part of those concerned with change. And that was kind of when I came to Vietnam, that, that those that lyric just came to mind of just like, oh, there's all these parties and things going on. But we, I wanted to do something that changed the dynamic of it, where there were more live bands coming through. So now, it seemed to- I've been here 40 years and actually before I got into the club scene, I was going out all the time to like um, Yoko Cafe. Oh, is it Yoko? Um, Yoko, yeah. Yeah, acoustic. Uh, I was I was living with a bunch of people that were just interested in live music. So I was looking for jazz mainly, and there was just the jazz cafe, which is very expensive. But I always remember that guy who's got like 10 different size saxophones. <laughs> He's still going, that guy. <laughs> but um, you've come in and, and identified straight away that there isn't like, I would say an eccentric taste of music. This is where I wanted to get you on the show because I think you've got an exceptional eccentric taste for music. Most of the people you put in front of me and you say, oh, I've got this guy, I booked this guy. I, I have to go and Google him. I'll be honest. And I think I've got a pretty pretty good all-round knowledge of music. So where did this come from? This, this uh, you know, this drive to find really different kind of style of music? Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think... I'm just into all different kinds of music, really. Whether it's, I mean, in Vietnam, especially when you're trying to work with sponsors and stuff, everything is very homogenous. Everyone wants the same thing, you know, and yeah. they want the same big names, and like, that, which is frustrating if you're a music lover because you you know there's a lot more good stuff out there that you know would work if it, if, it, if there was the exposure. But no one wants to get behind it because they want the same big names over and over again. So it, it's, di- you know, it's difficult to try and find the acts that work for the kind of money that we can afford. And then again, like, you know, in the in the old days from back home, you had like Enemy and Melody Maker and the local newspaper, like the Evening News, that would, that would, you know, give column inches to this stuff, you know, like small bands, new artists gig reviews, you know, do review of a gig. And you, if, if I read a positive review of a gig and a picture that went with it looked like it was great, yeah, I, I was looking out where they were where they were playing next. That's, you a, know, that's a very good point, yeah. Whereas there isn't really any of that here. Like when we try to promote shows, like there's no, there's no real music journalism. You get told like they'll print your, they'll print your prep, press release or publish your press release on their site, but you have to pay them like, 20 million 
and there's right. no journalism there's no actual writing it's just kind of paid for content so that then you kind of think well there's no there's nothing discerning about the content there that that says oh this is good or you know this is worth checking out it's just kind yeah. of like these guys paid the money for us to publish something you know well, um, yeah, we had Mixmag back in the day and we'd, we'd go, my mate Jamie would go through that all week and pick out where we were going to go for the weekend and we were there, no matter what, we were there, you know. Um, what what got you into music in an early age? What were your first major influences, would you say? I mean, like really early, like my, my dad really, my mum my and dad. Right? So my dad was, like, it was that it was that sort of era where I think we'd, my dad had got a hi-fi that was, one of the first, you know, ones without a turntable on. Yeah. So then he put his record player in the loft and then all his records were up there. And I used to go and sit in the in the evenings and go through his records. So, you know, Sweet. Beatles and Stones and Kinks and all that kind of stuff. Um and then Do you remember what the first the first record you the first record you actually put onto a vinyl? Do you remember that? Or you put onto a turntable? I don't. I don't. I, I don't remember exactly, but it was probably the Beatles. That 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 um, you know, the late one, the blue, the one with the blue rim, the double album. Right. It was okay. like a, two Beatles collections. There was the red one, which was like yeah. sixty four to sixty seven or something, and then the blue one was like sixty seventy, uh, sixty seven to seventy, with all like you know revolution on and stuff like that across the universe. So it's probably but, the, the the blue one of that. That that was the one that I played probably the most early on. Were your parents into the same music or? Uh, to some extent, I think like my mum liked the Beatles, but I think of that era, everyone liked the Beatles. Um, my dad was probably a bit more into the Who and the Stones. And then my mum was into like Elvis and Billy Fury and, you know. Right. Like so who would you say your, your favourite bands were growing up? Because, I mean, England's just rife with it. It's, it's hard to pick. But who's your favourite bands, favourite artists as you, as you become more mature and you could you know, really decide who you liked? Um, I think, I mean, uh, growing up, probably like James, a lot of the Manchester stuff, really. James, New Order, uh, Stone Roses, the Charlatans, Oasis. I mean, there were, there were loads. And then as, as like you were getting into a teenager, I think like, you know, the dance music stuff, Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers, um, the Bristol stuff from like Massive Attack and Portishead. There was just so Everyone remembers Britpop, but there was so much going on in different genres back then. Who is the best that you've seen live? Like our uh, best, our best festival experience. I don't know. Jack White was pretty close here. I think. Well, I think we're going to get to that. James is James is pretty much my go-to when I think of the best live band I've seen. I've seen them loads of times, but they're always they're always unbelievable live. Um, so, I mean, you know, aside from music, which is all this all, all about, what, what's your fondest memories growing up in England? Uh, sport, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, we were big United fans and, like, I spent, you know, my teen, teenage years ago to some Europe aways with, with the lads and stuff. And so that, that was a good experience. And then with, me and my brothers all played cricket to a reasonable standard, so... Oh. Like come come the come the summer, our house was just cricket mad. We were all playing like four or five days a week. You know, we'd come home from school, we're straight out playing cricket. On the weekends, we'd be playing senior cricket. You know, in the weekdays, we'd get the odd day off school playing representative cricket and stuff. So, yeah, it was just 
we were into football, but none of us were that good at it. My dad was a decent player, but <laughs> we, so weren't you, blessed, we weren't blessed with much pace, but, but we all played cricket to a reasonable level. Where are you actually from in Manchester, for the listeners? I, I was born in, not in Manchester, actually, in Salford, uh, from oh. Eccles. Oh, you, then, you know, um, okay. And then we moved to um, Ermston in Manchester in about, was that when I was about 12? So it, it, it was when I was 11, actually, because you did the 11 plus. So, so it, 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 sorry. coming from Salford, you had to have supported Man United, right? I mean, I I'm, I was born in Salford, but my dad's from Old Trafford, from Furswood. Right. Wow. So he, my, my grandparents, you know, my grandparents were Irish and that was the kind of Irish area, you know. It was like back in the old days, it was not like no Irish, no blacks. No, it's like oh. no, no dogs, no Irish, no blacks. Um, well, so would you the, say you you grew up in a in a rough area? <laughs> um, Eccles wasn't great. I, I have to, but I, I it's I like I loved Eccles in a way because it's you know my my earliest memories really. Um, but um, I I love Ermston. When we moved to Ermston when I was eleven, I mean there's good and bad everywhere, but Ermston was a bit nicer than Eccles, you know. Right. What was the what was your what was your uh, teenage challenges? Did you get bullied at school, or you know, did you have a hard time where you lived? Anything like that? Um, not really. I mean, school was the biggest challenge. Yeah, for me, just not not in terms of uh, socially like um, bullying or anything like that, but in terms of just I I didn't like working. I didn't like. In like schoolwork. Well, the reason I ask that question is because we're both left England, and, and you know most expats always have a reason later on in life, psychologically or whatever. For me, um, I just I'd had enough of the whole robotic syndrome. I used to call it. You know, I used to wave at people at the traffic lights in the morning because everyone was on the same time frame. It was so boring. But why? Why did you leave? Why leave England? I, I had. I mean, uh, I was a couple of years in Croatia, and then when uh, it was the like 2009 around the what was the financial crisis 2008 yeah that's and just before was, i sold the house my, my house right. i just missed out and so it was croatia was a bit of a delayed reaction really things were still going all right there and then um and then yeah 2009 because people weren't on a big salary there uh all of a sudden you got that uncertainty you know people didn't want to spend money um so I came back to the UK. I think I came back and it was winter as well. And it's just like, it was dark. It was wet. <laughs> it's just, and I'd, I'd met someone at the time who um, had just come back from Colombia and they'd been teaching in Colombia. Right. Uh, and I was saying, that sounds like a good gig. Like, you know, and then he explained to me about the shelter. And then I applied and I took a job. I did the shelter. Then I took a job in Colombia. Um, and then my mum was a bit, you know, she wasn't too keen on me going to Columbia due to its reputation. And, Which is uh, kind of sad because it's great. It's a great country, isn't it? I believe so, <laughs> but I've, I've never had the chance oh, you to get, get out there, there. since. Oh, no, I've been, I've been in Vietnam since then. So, and then I got, yeah, I got, um, I got another offer for work with, with ILA to to teach in Vietnam. And my parents seemed happier about that. Uh, so, yeah. So that. let me get this right. When you was in England, you weren't teaching at all. What no. were you doing there? I used to work in music PR. In well, I was in London for a couple of years, so right. out of university, 
I got a job working for a company called ZPR that became A Star PR. So right. they did they did some um, it's like a, a boutique PR company. So they did some festivals and stuff. They did um oh, so in festival. They did some stuff for like Warner and then some stuff for like what was Simon Cowell's thing? I can't remember Cycle. Oh, like yeah, so there were all say, sorts of all sorts is, of acts on there. This is the seed for your sort of journey to become where you are now with like minority. Would you say you might have seen some flaws in what they were doing and you thought you could have done a better job maybe on your own? It, it, it wasn't necessarily that. I think before I took the job there, I'd been working with some bands in Manchester and doing some gigs in Manchester with unsigned bands and stuff. And I, I managed a guy called uh, Jake Matheson and then worked with a band called Poets Corner. And yeah. um, so I'd always had that kind of, you know, J Jake was playing gigs like acoustically with like Liam Frey when Liam Frey from the Cortinas was gigging around oh, yeah. acoustically oh, yeah. in town. So uh, Conrad, uh, who manages the Cortinas, he was around at that time. He worked on the same fanzine as me, you know, we stand. So there was a, I had some background there. Then when I took the job in London, it, it was kind of on the premise that I'd be given license to do a bit of that, you know, try and find work with new artists, unsigned artists. And then the reality of once I was in that position, I, I just didn't have the time. You, you know, like in those kind of jobs, I didn't leave the office till like 7 p.m. every day. And then when when I did, it was kind of frowned upon, you know. It's like, well, I'm only contracted nine to five. I don't get paid overtime. But it's it's just that, like you were talking about, I guess, the, the rat race type of thing. It's just what people do or what's expected of you. Yeah, it's like so you, well, if you don't you, like it, there's a load of other people who'll do it. You know, exactly. You, you moved, you moved down to London. You made the big move down there. Yeah. How, how would you say the music scene compares? Because meet Manchester's so famous for its music scene. How would you compare the two cities overall? Um, ma massively different. I, I mean, everything's so close together in Manchester. Yeah. Whereas, like. You know, traveling. I, I lived in North London, but if there was something going on in like East Dulwich or something, it, it might it may as well be in Birmingham. Or, right. or like if I went to I went to see the Strokes at um, Hammersmith Apollo. Yeah. There, and it it was like by the time the gig was over and you wanted to get beer, it, like the underground was closed, and it was like getting a taxi back to North London cost a fortune. So oh, it, wow. it was it was just. Um, yeah, difficult. I mean, there was there was stuff going on in North London, and you could just stay around Islington and Camden and that kind of thing. But to get around, it was just yeah, it was just too big for me. I've I mean, I'm biased obviously because I'm a Northerner, but I've when I used to go down DJing in London, I just felt a little bit more attitude down there, and people weren't as friendly. Um, you know, you ask for directions, and people just rub you off. Not everybody, but I was almost scared to ask people for you know you know help in London. Um, but Manchester, even when I go back now, it still still feels friendly and people, you know, sit stand and talk to you as a stranger. Uh, I, people, I, talk... I, I, people, people always talk about that North South divide and say Northerners are more friendly. I don't know if that that stuff where everyone says hello to you on the street that's bollocks. <laughs> <You know>, like, <laughs> like, but there, there is, I, I understand where it comes from. There's it. I always felt like in when I worked in London, there was everyone always had an agenda. You know that that kind of like oh we must do lunch sometime which can also mean i, I never want to see you again you know right <laughs> like, so you you went to croatia you got a bit of a taste of this thing came back to england and then you come to vietnam and 
do you, do you, did you have an initial plan to do what you were doing now? Is that always it? You, you were going to get a teaching gig, obviously get a visa and TRC, whatever, but yeah. that wasn't your main focus, I guess. No, I, the plan was at the time was just to come over there for a year and just do something else, see a different part of the world. And then um, a year became two quite easily. Right. What year and was then, this um, that you, you came to Vietnam? Uh, 2010. Wow. That was 2009, so not far behind you. Yeah, and then and then when I was so I was in Vung Tau initially, and then when I moved back to moved to Saigon in end of twenty eleven, I was, I was just with friends at work, you know, discussing how the lack of live music and stuff. And then I was getting these emails at the same time. And then so I I got together a group of about five or six people and they said, How about we all, you know, six of us put in like two thousand dollars cool. and we can and we commit to doing a few gigs. You know, and um, are those people still involved, or is it just you now? <laughs> it was. It's funny. Like everyone wants to get involved, and then when you say right, it comes down to putting down the money. Right. Everyone's like, ah, oh, I've got to pay my rent, and I can't. Yeah. You know, so all these three people sort of fell by the wayside, and that's when I met Rod. And you know, we Rod was asking about, you know, how what kind of budget you're looking for, what kind of acts do you think you can get, and they say, how about we do you know, 50-50 rather than, you know, six people. Um, right. This. So we we did we did that. That's how we went at it from the start, really. Um, so t- tell us about the first gig you did. Because you've had, you've had quite a few lulls before you've had any kind of success, really, which is the, the obvious path. But what's I mean, the, the, first, first... The, the, the first couple of gigs we did were, were successful. Like Frank Turner, again, it was acoustic. Um you know, we had about, I think we had 350 people. ILA sponsored it. That was Cargo. Um, that was in cargo. cargo. Right. So that was, that worked. And then we did Japan Droids on the back of that, uh, I think a, mo- a month or so later or something. Um, and then, and then we did a run of a few. We did uh, the Cribs. Yeah. Um, I, I was there. It was good, that. Really good, that. Yeah, the Cribs. Wild Beast, which was a bit of a, I mean that was a flat one. That was I think we've got some momentum. We did a we'd done a few gigs and then we thought, yeah, we'll get four hundred people for Wild Beast. We had to pay a bit more for their production. They used in ears. They had a bit of a backline. We had to hire in some like a a monitor mixing desk. So it cost us a fair bit extra, but we were confident we get four hundred because we got six hundred for the cribs. We got um, I think five hundred for Japan Roids. And then we got just, like just, just to put into context for listeners, how many people would be uh, would would be attending gigs in other countries for those bands, for example? I mean, Frank Turner, he was he just played Wembley Arena at that point, so he sold out Wembley Arena to twelve thousand. Um, this is the struggle then, of Vietnam. It's crazy. Yeah, but it's always. I, I mean, he understands that. It's horses for courses, right? You know, where yeah. where are you in the world? He knows no one. You know, Vietnamese don't know me. And the, the frustrating thing with all that is the the media channels to try and promote a gig. You know, you've got like things like yeah. TV and all that. None of them are interested unless it's like some big, they're, they're interested in fame and celebrity rather than the music. Yeah. And um, the, I, I guess these artists actually enjoy the intimate gig as well, right? It's a bit of a change. I, yeah, I, to go I, somewhere I, different. Frank Frank had actually been to Vietnam before traveling. So right. he was, he had a couple of days here. He had a great time. Obviously, we we still want to bring him back at some point. 
Hopefully so we, you did the, the Wild Beast, and then after that, who was next? I think Wild Beast. Yeah, then the... Black, Rebel, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Oh, yeah. Which was our biggest show in Cargo. That was almost 900 people. That's awesome. Um, was that so predominantly expats or, you know, what was it, a good mix? Well, it, the Black Rebel was the first one where we had, like, I mean, the Cribs was okay. We did, like, a cheap ticket for the Cribs for Vietnamese students. So we... We had about 150 people come in on like a $5 ticket type thing. Right. And then for Black Rebel, we had like a couple of hundred Vietnamese kids all at the front, you know, like, um, which was great because that's great for the bands to see. Um, and then we we employed, so there was a, a girl new that came to that gig. She was studying at RMIT. And then we employed new to do some marketing for us because it's like, we need more people like you. <laughs> you know coming to right. our shows because cool. once once people are there you know they'll they'll enjoy it they always do but it's trying to get them there in the first place what get them to you know ignorance is bliss isn't it you don't you don't know what you're missing if you've never seen it uh, and then you you had the dj the northern soul dj i really liked kept arch yeah he was wicked that yeah was that wasn't me that that, oh, that, that was um the... it was the american guy dj Involved. Or was it Jace? Was Jace involved in that? I was don't that know. Jace? Oh, I always thought that was you. Yeah, it was great, uh-huh. though. Um, so, okay, so you've had... um, And then those were, you know, the beginning of Loud Minority. And then last year, you had a real cracker, Jack White. Uh, mm. Tell us about that. So, Which yeah, I we, missed. we were... I missed, unfortunately. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> you missed most of our shows. <laughs> <laughs> Always working. Always bloody so working. Jack... Yeah, we were offered Jack White a few years back, and it was it was just way too much money for um, what we what we thought was viable here. And then, um, what was it last? Yeah, last year we were we were at a, di- a difficult time. Me and the wife were kind of like trying to save money for a mortgage and looking at moving back to the UK in a few years. For we got two kids now, and then um, we 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 got an email about Jack White, and it's like. God, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like of course it, it's one of those. Of course you want to do it, but it's just like oh, this is. And then I think the more, the longer you think about it, you convince yourself like, okay, you know, let's do it. Um, did you did you get the email directly, or did did a bunch of people get it? It was you initially got that email. I, I got I got the email from his agent. So a funny thing about this, like I got an email from his agent that I I dealt with a bunch of times before. Um, and then we, 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 I just told him, look, here's here's where we're at. Like we just can't afford it, you know. If it's anything like what we were told it, it cost last time, right? So then right. he came, then he came back and said, look, I, I understand all this, but Jack really wants to play Vietnam. That's awesome. So, so what, whatever, can you just make an offer? You know, like whatever it is, can you make an offer? And then, so we did. I spoke with Rod, and we. we, we you know, said you know, fifty fifty in. What what can we do as a deposit? And then um, we made an offer. They said, "Can you put it up just a little bit?" <laughs> and we and, were like, I think on behalf of the the people of Vietnam, we I'll thank you personally, you and Rod, for putting up that deposit because people just don't understand the risk. You just said there, two kids looking to get a mortgage, and you still go and do this demo. So that's great, man. Proud of you. Yeah. Epic stuff. Did so? What? Why? What was he? Why did he want to come to Vietnam? He'd never been to Vietnam before. So oh, yeah, he'd never been to Vietnam before. So, so as we found out, and this is 
this was a brilliant part of the story. So, um, on the morning after the, so obviously we're, we're busy for a couple of days there. I, I met with um, a friend of mine. We picked up Jack White from the airport, got him to his hotel and all that. A friend of mine was looking after him uh, as a runner for a couple of days. The morning after the gig, I'm back at the venue getting all the all the gear moved out and everything and picked up. Rod's gone to the airport with Jack White's crew. And as he's, Rod's not met Jack for the whole two days at this point. And then right. Jack comes up to him and goes, are you Rod? And he's like, yeah. He said, you did the Jack, you did the Bob Dylan show, right? And he oh was my like, God, that's yeah. awesome. And he said, uh, Bob told me about it, you know? Wow. And, and he was like, said he, he had such a great time and, you know, um, he said he told me what a great guy you were and everything was brilliant. You was well looked after. And uh Rod was said, you know, it cost him a lot of money, the Bob Dylan gig, but he had a tear in his eye at this point, you know. I'm so, sure he's smiling from here to Timbuk too right now, listening to that. That just sent a shiver up my back, man. That's pretty epic. Yeah, story. and then he, he said to Rod, I'm gonna call <laughs> him tomorrow and tell him the exact same thing. Um so that was wow. that was great, you know. and fair play to because a lot of artists come through, they do so many gigs mm. in so many places, especially people like Dylan. Um, for him to remember that kind of stuff and, like, you know, mention Rod's name to Jack, it's like, you know, what what a legend. Amazing. So what's next? You've got a massive gig coming up in uh, December, which is it's about time. Um, one of my all-time legends, uh, somebody that I... I sort of discovered around 1997, 1998 when the uh, On The Floor album came out. Me and my best mate, Matt, who's passed away, he used to get me into all kinds of shit. He used to just be that guy who had a CD that, where the fuck have you got that from? Or what's that sound? But that On The Floor boutique CD was mega because it was a mix of all kinds of stuff, wasn't it? Like, Yeah. Um, and that that really, I think that opened my mind in, in, in to say, like, I don't have to just play like house. I can play all over the place and it's okay. Um, so yeah, who, 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 who are we talking about? Uh, Norman Cook, Fat Boy Slim. That's right, House <laughs> Martins. Um, yeah, he's coming. But that, that was, it, yeah, you're right though. Like in that, I think that's why he crossed over so well between like the dance community and like alternative music in a mainstream. Like, I, I was watching a thing the other day with you know how we put Praise You together with all the different yeah, samples. I've seen it, and it's genius. That's mad, isn't it? It's like, it's yeah, you had, you had a bunch of really old... these things from. I know. Well, I mean, back then, I, I remember with my mate, Andy Wyatt, big shout out to Wyatt, we used to try and mix together with tapes. And we used to we used to rip samples off of a, off a movie on the TV. You know, like you'd have like Police Academy theme tune and we'd press record at the end and try to get that track. And then we'd cut that up on a, on a tape deck. Just stupid things that take you forever and it would sounded shit, but it was fun. And yeah. yeah, Norman Cook's the guy that he he needed to do something and he didn't have the technology at the time, so he improvised and it and it became his sound, and that's why he's so big. Um, so yeah, um, how did this come about? Because this is you've you've you predominantly I've always been saying to you, I love what you do, but even I, I, I don't know most of these acts, and I know Vietnam very well, I've been DJed here for 14 years and just to give you an example of how frustrating it is for me, people used to come up to me and ask me for a song. No, they used to come up to me and say, I don't like this song. And I'm getting me music from the UK, so I'm, I'm three months ahead of everybody else. And then they said they don't like it. And then a month later, they're asking me for the same song because it's number one in the fucking charts now. And it was just like, you can't, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't please everybody. And then 
And then I started having to play all kinds of styles and genres. I got lost. That's one of the reasons I just yeah. stopped. And people said, people said, oh, you sold out. A lot of these underground DJs, fair, fair point. You know, I, I wasn't playing underground music, but I was going for the money because I, I had a kid and yeah. um, and I did. I I, I, I uh, suffered from that. I, I, I sold my soul. I, um, I drained my soul. So I wouldn't consider Norman Cook to be a mainstream gig, but it's a much more logical gig for you. And I, and I'm, I'm proud that you've, you've took that, 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 that call, you know, you, I think, as you said, you're building up your brand now, and this is, this should be a safe bet. We hope, you know, I think it should be. So what was the jump on that? I mean, we, we, we tried with Fatboy Slim a couple of years back with Coracle. Yeah. Uh, we we asked the question and we were on a, a limited budget with Coracle, but we just thought, you know, on the off chance, it's on a beach. You know, I've, I know people who've done Fatboy Slim gigs before, and it's not always about the cash, you know. And I right. don't I don't think it is in terms of coming to Vietnam. So saying like Jack White saying, I want to play Vietnam. Th- right. There's a certain onus on on big artists that they if they want to play it, they've got to be realistic about what kind of fee they can get. That's um, excellent. Well, I think you might you might start a trend there as well. Cause um, you know, we've done Pete Tong and Bob Sinclair and everything in the past. It blanches and it was it, it killed the budget for a whole year, let's say that. It was ridiculous. We went too high. Not me personally, but I was part of it. But we went too high and, and basically fucked ourselves with the with the whole being able to book other DJs. We had no budget and nobody would sponsor again. So I'm I'm hoping this is gonna give you um, you know, more more leeway with with other artists that are going to say, look, it's not about the money. I want to come over. And in, I've just seen Fatboy Slim's doing this, just done a charity gig in uh, Brighton to save some pub, right? Yeah, seems like, yeah, yeah. So it seems like he might be on a bit of a a virtue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's don't get me wrong, it's still a fair chunk of cash for a, a DJ to make. But right, you know, it's uh, we know from the kind of actor he is that he, he gets a lot more than that elsewhere, you know? So, so it just, it just this understanding of playing here to what is a fair crowd for a fair fee, you know, for where you're at, you know? So you and Rod were running the Coracle festival as well, which again, great, brilliant setup. Can't, can't fault the whole thing. The only issue I saw was trying to get people to, to go down to the beach. I mean, once you're there, it's fantastic, but, there was this is what people are kind of lazy and they always leave it to last minute, which is tough to to get your money in. But I think now what you've done is you've realized, you know, one of my questions is what have you learned so far in your journey? Doing something like that in Ho Chi Minh surely is a big advantage. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're parking Coracle for the moment because it just didn't work. You know, we 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 had three years at it. Yeah, and it, and it lost money every year, and it's yeah. it's a lot of effort. It's emotional, especially when you've got wives and children involved, and it's totally. sacrificing on their part. But um, you know, we we're still quite we're still quite stubborn that we 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 want to come back to it. I it's know you are. <laughs> Rod, Rod's want... going to be watching this like we're not giving up. We're not giving up yeah. yet. <laughs> so, but it, it just meant because. So the, the last Coracle on one of my best experiences at a DJ event in Vietnam was at the last Coracle, the last morning, 5 a.m. 5 till 7 a.m., Yoko, Japanese girl, did yeah, it, she... uh, played a DJ set at sunrise. Yeah. And it was amazing. 
her set was unbelievable, perfect. The sun was rising over the ocean. We had this bamboo backdrop to the stage that the sun was coming through and it had Epic. a coracle stencil on the back. We were on the sand. It was amazing. There should, and, you know, if, if, if there were a thousand people there at that time, they'd have been having the time of their life. But there was about 20 people. If and I think I think it's a good time to say, like, you know, I'm a DJ and um, I actually reached out to you once I found out Fatboy Slim was coming here. But you'd already booked people, which is fair play. You've done plenty of, for me in the past. Um, this this is uh, this is an important moment right here to say well done to Yoko for that, because she obviously impressed you. And now she's got the, the opportunity to warm up for a massive DJ. Shout out to Alan Ritchie, who's killing it in Vietnam right now. I love Alan for the just his pure energy and the way he just yeah. keeps going. His he's, he's, he's and his he's love got, for it, you know, like which is the love. same. It Mate, kind of matters that's... us, you know. When it when he talks about, you know, techno or house, and and he's talking about tracks that he grew up with, and you know, looking for records, you can tell it kind of matches where we're coming from, you know. Yeah, well, that's that's where I took a step back. People keep asking me, you know, do you, do you want to play here and there? And I'm just, I, it's not that I've quit. I'm, I'm kind of semi-retired. I just needed to take a break because I, I got so lost in all these, you know, I was doing different gigs every night, different styles of music. And I was like, do, do I really like this music or am I just doing it for the money? You, yeah, I got trapped in that. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, I quit my other job, my main job to to focus on DJing and when, when that when you hit a peak and you, you can't really go past that, people get bored of you. So then I had to sort of like, you know, get over the pride thing of going back to work again. But I found something now that I, I like. And if I do DJing again, I'll have that fire in my heart and that passion. So yeah, I watch Alan. Um, uh, I'm in awe of him actually, just watching him going, he's bouncing from, you know, two, three gigs a night, uh, doing radio shows and everything. So it, it was no surprise to see him on a flyer and well done to that. And I want to give a shout out to Kaiser as well. Kaiser was my bro at Blanche's. He's, uh, he's he's the boy in Vietnam for that. So I think you got a solid lineup there. And me and my mates can't wait, mate. I think it's going to be bouncing. Uh, I think it's brilliant for Lao Minority. It's fantastic to see you um, build this, this up and not quit. Um, what advice would you share with anybody who, who wants to get into the, the booking industry or... You know, anybody who wants to do festivals in the future or who's thinking about a future in music, what, what advice could you give them? It's it's hard. To, I, don't, I don't really, I'm not sure. I'm don't sure. don't I'm read your emails. <laughs> don't, don't, don't read your emails. <laughs> I, I, I think being, I, I think sticking to what you love, I think like yes. is, the, is, is a key part. Like, because it's one of those i think what i'd say the same about dylan and i'd certainly say the same about wild beast and in that like if if you lose on a show but the band are great then there's still some comfort in that you know there's still something that you're like you know you look back in the future and think like okay we, we survived the the heartbreak and the the financial hit exactly but, you know we, we we it was a great show and and, and that the frustrating thing about Wild Beast is that for the people that were there, like, I don't know, there's probably 10 or 20 people in this town that have come to the, like, 90% of our shows. And a lot of them say Wild Beast was the best one. <laughs> so Mega. I think I think that's really genuine to say that. I mean, look, you don't get Jack White coming over with a message from Bob Dylan saying, yeah, maybe that's the reason that Jack White came here. And now who's going to be the third one? You know what I mean? Um, anyway, tell us when is this big gig? Uh, we're going to wrap this up now. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, when is the Fat Boy Slim gig in Ho Chi Minh? 
What's so Propo Slim, Saturday the 30th of December, day before New Year's Eve. Yeah. Uh, starts from 4 p.m. Uh, Fat Where's Boys the venue? Lovely, obviously, a youth cultural house in District One, so right near Diamond Plaza. Easy to yeah. get to. Um, um, do you, what, what's ticket, the deal with food? from loudminority.asia. There'll be food vendors on site to be confirmed. Yeah. Anybody? Um, oh, you can't can't give anybody a shout out yet. Do you want Matt to give Ryan anybody? Will be there. Uh, Union Jacks will be there. For okay, sure. we're gonna give Union Jacks big shout out. Matt, I want some money for this sponsorship. <laughs> some free chips with extra peas. Um, uh, Jose Cuervo, Jägermeister, are sponsoring the the show, so there'll be plenty of. I'm sure there'll be Jäger bombs and uh, tequilas and margaritas and stuff going on. So all right, and then um, just before we wrap it up, what's the end goal for you, if any? Are you gonna stick around in Vietnam, or are you still gonna go back to the UK with your family? I mean, we, 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 we're trying to create a long-term project in Vietnam that ne- that means we don't necessarily need to be in Vietnam 100% of the time. So it can be based in the UK and come over occasionally. Right. So it's, it's, the, the, the end goal is sustainability for live music shows. Everything, we're still in an era where it relies heavily on sponsorship. And then, you know, a lot of people who put on shows here, if it's not sponsored, they don't do it. You know, they, they, they don't put their own money into things. So... Um, where, where, where do you visualize Vietnam's music scene moving forward? Are, are, are there more of these big sponsors available or? I don't know. I mean, they're like Maroon 5 stuff and all that kind of thing that goes on. I, I have no, no inkling or no desire to, you know. Are we, going, are we likely going to see, you know, a couple of massive acts a year? You know, the big stages like Red Hot Chili Peppers. Is that going to happen, that kind of stuff, you know? I, I don't know. I'd like. I'd like to think that we can, you know, there's the, some of those huge, like especially rock alternative artists that that are big that do occasionally do smaller shows and would be, you know, along the same lines of Jack White, where they would come here at a reduced fee. Uh, we hope there's more of those. Obviously, um, we we hope to, you know, we can develop that audience. Um, but you know, who knows? We'll see. Well, I know one thing for sure that this Fat Boy Slim gig is going to be a lot more successful than Man United in the Champions League this year. Damien Kilroy absolutely killed it. Thank you very much for your time, and I will see you at the gig, mate. All right, fella. Thanks, Adam. Cheers, mate. You're welcome, sir. Cheers. Have a nice day, brother. You too.